And uh, growing up in a house without faith, you know, I didn't much think about God or think about death. You know, heaven or hell, I thought death, that was it. It's over, just like whatever it was before we were born. And that's just how I viewed life, and I thought that's how it was. And I started uh, getting involved with the wrong crowds, little drinking, doing drugs, and stuff like that. And I decided, good way to make money. I already do them, I already have enough of them. Why not start selling them, right? And so uh, my junior year, I had a teacher, and uh, he invited me to church, which was shocking because that was very frowned upon. The card he gave me was just an invitation to church. But I'm not gonna go to church, you know, that's not where I go at this time, you know, I don't know anything about that. And my friend and I went to go sell some drugs and, uh, and we're getting ready and stuff like that and I find that card. Just conveniently enough, I see it. And I'm thinking to myself like, man, I told that teacher I would go, you know, I really liked him. So I said, hey man, you got this one on your own, right? He's like, don't worry about it. I'm like, okay, cool. So I go to the church building. And uh, the, the preacher preaches a sermon, and I got up and went to the back, and it's just funny how God works. Even my teacher, I went to pray with him, and even he was like, all right, man, I'll see you later. He thought I was leaving. He, There's no way he's accepting Jesus, you know? And I was like, no, I was hoping you'd pray for me. And he straightens up real quick. He's like, yeah, yeah, you know? And he brings it in, and I just accepted God right there. And I get a text message. It says my friend who went on that drug deal got shot. And I'm thinking I used to get this message. You know, that could have been me. I could have been sent to hell. I wasn't going to heaven at the time, obviously. I didn't know Jesus until this church service. And then when I think I got saved, it really made me realize, like, you can gather everything up here on earth, but what's it worth if you lose your soul? Always good to know that the Lord gave me that eternal perspective now, and then I can really share that and make people realize, like, stuff here doesn't matter. Some people I used to run with, I just didn't associate with anymore because it was just too much bad influence on me. And, uh, Unfortunately, one of those people was an old buddy of mine I used to run with named Preston. I found out he was real sad and depressed, really didn't have anything to live for, and uh, ultimately ended up taking his own life. And uh, after I heard that happening, it broke me down, broke my heart, because I'm thinking to myself, you know, it's over for him, and he's unfortunately in hell, and it's real hard to live with, real hard to have that regret, knowing that something I could have said could have affected his eternity. I learned from that that I never know when someone's gonna go. I never know what's going on in someone's head. I never know when they might take their own life or could just die from, for whatever reason. So I try to be more bold and really share my faith. And it's just crazy, a lot of my friends in the past, uh, just how I was, just out of nowhere seeing this crazy 180, you know? They're just, what? what is, that's not you, that's you doing this, this. Who are we supposed to get our stuff from now? Stuff like that. Man, that's not my problem, but it's great because you know, some people, who actually have been like, hey, what happened? I told them, and they've seen such a dramatic life change that they've come to church, and now they're getting saved, and it's, they come here with me now sometimes, and it's just real cool to see how some people are just like, man, if it can happen for him, it must be something real there, and they just go pursue it themselves. Let's pray together. God, thank you for this morning, and thank you for the reminders that we've already sung, the scriptures we've already read that remind us of your great mercy and grace. And I pray now as we dive into your book of Ephesians that you would again just impress upon us how much you love us and that if it were not for you, we would have never come to you. Uh, so we thank you for your grace and your mercy this morning. And I pray that we would glorify you with what we say and do today. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. So you saw that little video clip my question to you is, what happened to that young man in that video? How did he go from one moment doing and dealing drugs to the next moment living for Jesus? How does that happen? Why does that happen? For what purpose does that happen? 
those are the questions that I think Paul is going to answer for us this morning in Ephesians chapter 2, and we're going to be looking at verses 4 to 7 this morning because I believe that is the answer to what happened both to that young man in the video as well as what happened to you if you are a believer here this morning. So I'm going to read the passage for us. I'm going to actually start reading in verse 1 of chapter 2 down to verse 7. We covered verses 1 to 3 last week, but I think it helps to set the context again for today. So follow along as I read Ephesians 2, verses 1 to 7. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved, and raised us up with him, and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages, he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. Amen. That is actually one long sentence in Greek, in the original language, verses 1 to 7. One long sentence. And so if you were here this morning and you remember anything from your high school English class, you know that a sentence has only one subject and one verb, right? One subject and one verb. So what, what is the subject and what is the verb of this one long sentence that spans from verses 1 through 7? Well, the subject and verb actually show up in verses 4 and 5. Here it is. God made us alive. That's the subject and the verb. That's the main clause. God made us alive. Everything else in those verses surround and give context to that pinnacle of truth. That's the apex. That's the, the, the highlight of the matter. And here's what I want you to see this morning as we look at these verses. I want you to leave this morning amazed at the beauty of the sovereignty of God that is on full display when he saves unbelievers. That's what I want you to see. We read in verse 1 that all people, Jew and Gentile, Paul's kind of including everybody here, all people were, before Christ, dead. Dead in their sins and trespasses. Dead people don't move. Dead people don't respond to stimuli. Uh, dead people, regardless of the prodding, regardless of the coaxing, uh, re, re, regardless of, of the poking, dead people cannot do anything besides lie there. As Ryan mentioned, we've had a number of funerals recently, and as wonderful as those celebrations are, of the lives that we remember, the ministries of those individuals' lives, the reality is they're dead, right? 
we go back into the graveyard and we, we lower a casket into the grave and we don't expect that dead body to do much, do we? So when Paul says in verse 1, we were dead, what does he mean by that? Well, of course, for you and I, what he's talking about is that we had a dead spirit. Yeah, we're alive physically. We, we move around physically, but, but spiritually, we're dead. And just like dead people, we don't respond to God. We don't align ourselves with God. We don't, we don't follow the pattern of God. We, we live for ourselves. We live for our pleasures. We live for our protections. We live for our cravings. We are all part of what we called last week the walking dead. We were part of the, the walking dead. I don't know how many of you have ever seen the movie The Sixth Sense, and, and I'm going to spoil the movie for you, so if you've never seen it, uh, cover your ears. But at the end of the movie, the main character finds out he's actually been dead the whole movie and didn't know it. He's the walking dead. He's, he's moving around. He, he thinks he's alive, but he's actually dead. He discovers the truth that he's actually dead. That's how you and I lived our lives before Christ. We were dead. We followed the course of the world. We followed the prince of the power of the air. We, we live like the rest of the sons of disobedience. We live for our passions and our, our desires. Nothing within us had the desire nor the ability to do anything different besides live for ourselves. It's interesting that Paul in Romans 8, in verses 7 and 8, says this, For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot Please, God. That, that word cannot there is the Greek word dynamai, from which we get our English word dynamite, right? Dynamite has power or ability. So what Paul is saying there in Romans chapter 8 is this. You and I had no power, no ability, no dynamite to be able to please God. Why not? Ephesians 2.1. We were dead. Dead. Dead people have no power. Dead people are helpless. Dead people are unable to change on their own. And yet, you and I, before Christ, were very much alive physically. And we were running around, and out of the nature that we had, which was a sinful nature, the one that we inherited from our parents, who inherited all the way back from Adam and Eve, we lived out of our nature. And we were, by our very nature, children of wrath, Paul says. We deserved Jesus, God's punishment, his, his justice for disobeying him over and over and over again. Do you see the dilemma we were in? Do you see the real problem here? Dead people walking around pleasing themselves, heaping the wrath of God upon their heads, standing under the right condemnation of God for spurning him with absolutely no power, no ability to change anything because we were dead. That's quite a dilemma. That's a real problem. It's going to take quite a solution 
to fix that kind of a problem. And it is here where the glorious news of the gospel shines so brightly against a black and bleak background. That's when you get to verse 4 and you read these words, but God. Those are some of the most hopeful words you can find in Scripture. Those are some of the most gracious and welcome words that you can find anywhere in the Scriptures. There are no other words that can bring about intense joy like those two words, but God intervened, but God stepped in, but God did something that you and I could not do on our own. And lest you forget, the entire focus of this sentence is not on you, it is on God. But God did something. When Christian preachers and teachers confuse this matter and confuse the source of our hope and make it about something that's within you, like it's something that you did, they are actually draining the blessings of the gospel in your life. You know why? A, they are fundamentally robbing God of his mercy and sovereignty and his initiative in salvation that permeates all of Scripture. And B, they are resting the foundation of your assurance on you and on your behavior. And if your assurance rests on you and your behavior, let me tell you something, you're on a very shaky ground. In a very real way, if you confuse the source of hope right here, you end up creating a man-centered theology instead of a God-centered theology, which is far less spectacular, far less hopeful, and I would say even an assault against the God of the Bible. It is God who takes the initiative here. It is God who intervenes. It is God who acts. It is God who does something about the sorry state of being in which I am in. in. And what does he do? Verse 5. Look at it again. What What does God do? He makes us alive together with Christ. In other parts of the New Testament, that's called new birth. He gives us new birth. He causes us to be born. He, He gives us life. He brings about a new birth. It's the same power that Paul has just described at work in Jesus back up in chapter 1. Look up in chapter 1 and verse 19. The same power shows up here. It says, what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe according to the working of his great might, here it is, that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places. It's that immeasurable power of God that he used to raise his very own son and give him life that he uses to give your dead soul life. It's the same power. It's the same one. We, we can't describe that kind of power. We, we, don't, we don't have anything 
in our earthly experience that's similar to that kind of a power. We, there's no way to describe it other than it's, it's the power of God, the immeasurable, indescribable power of God. As humans, we can take living things and we can make other living things from it, but no mere human ever has ever had the ability to take something that's dead and bring life out of it. We can't do that. You and I don't have that kind of power. That kind of power is reserved for God and God alone. In him is life. And in him, he gives life. So, verse 5, God made us alive when we were dead in our trespasses. Now, sadly, some people stop reading right there and, and, and make the claim that God makes everyone alive. In fact, he doesn't. If you keep reading, you'll find out that there's two more things that happen that are not descriptions of unbelievers. They're only descriptions of believers. Look again at verse 6. Not only did he make us alive, verse 6, and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Three things he's done for us. He's made us alive. He's raised us up with Christ. And by the way, that is a reference to uh, Christ's ascension, not his resurrection. He, he raised us up. He, he brought us to his side, and he seats us with Christ in the heavenly places. Now, I want you to notice some comparisons here that Paul is, is drawing. Christ had died physically, you and I were dead spiritually. Christ was raised physically. Believers are made alive and raised with Christ spiritually. Christ is seated in the heavenly realms physically today. You and I, as believers, are seated with Christ in the heavenly realms spiritually. Can you see, you see the parallels there? What does that mean for you and I today? That we were raised with Christ and we are seated with him in the heavenlies. Well, here's what that means for me and you. We have a new citizenship. We, we, we live in a new kingdom. We have an, a new residency. And because we're part of a new kingdom, we have new kingdom values. We have a new Lord. We have a new master. We're not controlled any longer by this world's values. Now we have our king's values and we have his power to help us live that out. We never had that before. We were dead. We didn't have the power to live a life pleasing to God for his glory, for his name's sake. It was impossible before. Not any longer. It's ours. Why? Because we are bound up in Christ, and all that is his is now ours. You see? That's a magnificent truth. Next time when we're together, we'll, we'll come back to verses 8 through 10, and we'll talk about what it means to live out those kingdom values. We'll get to that. But just for now, I want you to pause and think about your present reality is that you are a citizen of the heavenly kingdom. You are seated with Christ spiritually in the heavenlies, and you now share with him his power to live out his values in this world. Wow. Wow kind of lifts our minds 
to lofty places, doesn't it? Now, why in the world did God do this for you? Why would God make you alive? What motivated God? Did God look down and say, oh, they're just so cute and wonderful. I just want to help them. Did God look down at you and say, oh, they're trying so hard. I'll just give them that little boost that they need to kind of get over the hump. Is that, is that what motivated him? Is that, is that what caused him to do this? Maybe God looked down and said, you know, those Mennonites, they're such a special group of people. I'm going to be extra kind to them. I'm going to help them. They're just a tad better. Is that, is that, is that what, what motivated God? What caused God to look on your dead soul and give you life? I want you to notice something in verses 4 and 5. You are not even mentioned. You are not in verses 4 and 5. Not a word about you. There is nothing about you whatsoever in those verses. Why did God do what he did? Look again at verse 4. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, that's why he acted. Because he's merciful and because he's loving. It was all because of him and all because of his sovereign mercy. Friend, I want to, this is something that is so important for you to understand. Because if you think that there is something, anything in you that evoked God's mercy and love toward you, then you also have to accept that there is something within you that could undermine that love for you. What if you're not cute forever? And some of you, ugh. Just kidding. What if you don't follow what he wants you to do? What if in your trying, you fail in your efforts? What if you're not Mennonite anymore? Is God going to suddenly look at you and say, oh, well, they had that going for them and... Now they're not that anymore. And, you know, since they failed to meet even that minimum standard, I, I, I think I'm just going to walk away. Pay attention to this, friend. The only thing that grounds our assurance is that God first loved us before we loved him. The only thing that grounds our assurance is that God loved us when we were dead. 1 John 4.19 says, we love because he first loved us. John 15.16 says, you did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit. If God had not loved you first, you would have never loved him. If God had not chosen you, you would have never chosen him. By the way, we expose our, our belief that that is true when we pray for unbelievers. You ever, have you ever listened to somebody pray for an unbeliever? I have never been in a prayer meeting where I heard someone praying for an unbeliever and the prayer went something like this. God, you see so-and-so over there? He's trying so hard. 
He's really special. I think you ought to do something for him. Just help him out a little bit. God, you see that person over there? They're so great. They're trying to do... You never hear that, do you? That's not how we pray for unbelievers, is it? How do we pray for unbelievers? When you and I pray for unbelievers, what do we hear? God, open the eyes of their heart. Let them see how desperately they need you. Let them see their sinful state of being. Show them Christ, God. You you hear that? There's a difference there. That's what we hear. Why? Because at the very core of the matter, we understand that no one can save himself without the sovereign work of God first in his life. It is an impossibility for a dead person to resurrect himself from the dead. He needs life from somewhere. And that life only comes from God. And so what are we asking God for when we pray for unbelievers? New birth. Give them life. Make them alive. I remember when, when I was saved, I was saved at the tender age of 12 years old. I, I grew up in the church. I have no idea how many times I probably heard the gospel throughout the course of those 12 years. Probably countless numbers of times I heard, Jesus died for you, you're a sinner, you need, accept, uh, you need to accept uh, Jesus Christ. Why was it that this one time when I was 12 years old was I convicted? Why was it on this one time when I heard the gospel that suddenly I realized I was a sinner in desperate need of this Jesus guy? Was it just that I was that smart on that day? Was it just that I had matured enough that I could finally understand? Was it just that I was so special on that day? No, 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 no. You know what happened on that day when I heard the gospel? Like that, God made me alive spiritually. And for the first time, I saw, oh my goodness, I'm a sinner. I'm, I'm, I'm on my way to hell. I need a Savior. And there in front of me stood Jesus Christ. Not physically, spiritually. There in front of me stood Jesus Christ. How did, how did God do that? How, how, did, how did he make me alive to that? I don't know. I can't explain that. It's, it's a sovereign act. But I do know this, that when God does that and he, he acts in the lives of unbelievers, it is his gracious and sovereign kindness and mercy and love. And it is such that it grounds our confidence that nothing can separate us from this love of God in Christ Jesus. That comes out of Romans 8. Why not? Because the moment we're made alive, it says we're made alive together with Christ. Everything about me now in my spiritual being is bound up in the person of Christ. I am with Christ. I am in Christ. I'm I'm seated with him in the heavenlies. My heavenly citizenship exists because I am in Christ. I am with him. The only way I can get cast out of the heavenlies is if Jesus gets cast out of the heavenlies because I'm in him. And if that makes you nervous, if that, if that makes you uncomfortable to hear that, come back next week because that, that security, that assurance has a purpose. 
God doesn't save us merely as a ticket out of hell. He has a far greater and more noble purpose than that. It has to do with conforming us into the image of his son and causing us to walk in, in good works. So come back, hear that part of it. Why does God do this for dead people? Why, did, why does God give life and, and a relationship with him and, and a citizenship in heaven? Why does he do it? Well, look at, look at verse 5. By grace, you have been saved. His grace. If you are a believer here this morning, you should be one of the most humble people on the face of the earth. The only reason you're a believer is because of God's grace, not of you. The only reason you have a hope of heaven, the only reason you have hope of Christ is because God showed you grace. That should make you humble. It's only by grace that God saved your pathetic soul and mine and gave us the riches of his blessing. Why, God, would you ever choose a worm like me? Why? We sing a hymn around, around this place. It talks about this. In fact, if you were here last Sunday, we sing this hymn. It goes like this. I know not why God's wondrous grace to me he hath made known, nor why unworthy Christ in love redeemed me for his own. Do you remember, you know the hymn? The second verse goes like this. I know not how. Okay, so now he didn't know why. Now he says, I know not how this saving faith to me he did impart, nor how believing in his word wrought peace within my heart. Do you know how the chorus goes? But I know in whom I have believed, and I am persuaded that he is able to keep that which I've committed unto him against that day. Do you know what that is a reference to? That is a reference to your assurance. That is a reference to your assurance. Because if I don't know why, and if I don't know how, but I know that God did that for me, then I am persuaded that he can keep me as well. And by the way, if you go look up that hymn in the Mennonite hymnal under the topical index, you will find it under the topic of assurance. Rightly so. There's one more piece here, and I, I don't want us to miss it because it really ties this grand story of God in, into this neat bow. Look at again, verse 7. Look what he says. Why, why did God do this? I mean, what's the, what's the purpose? So that in the coming ages, he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus a guy named Milton Vincent wrote a wonderful book called The Gospel Primer. It's in our library if you want to go check it out. And Vincent says this in his book. The essence of eternal life is not found in having my sins forgiven, in possessing a mansion in heaven, or in having streets of gold on which to walk forever. Rather, 
the essence of eternal life is intimately knowing God and Jesus Christ, whom he has sent. Everything else that God gives to me in the gospel serves merely to bring me to himself so that this great end might be achieved. Christ died for the forgiveness of my sins so that I might be brought to God. Christ is preparing a place for me in heaven so that he might receive me to himself and have me forever with him where he is. And yes, there is a street of gold in heaven, but is there any doubt where the street leads? Unquestionably, it leads straight to the throne of God himself, as do all of God's gifts to me in the gospel. Why does God save you? Why, why does God take your dead soul and give you life? Because for the coming ages, God is going to gather all of those trophies of his grace and he is going to display them forever for his glory. He will forever delight in all of his attributes, especially his attributes of his grace and his mercy and forgiveness as he gazes upon the objects of those mercies and grace and forgiveness. And his church will be spotless and without blemish and he will hold that up in Satan's face and he will say, you lose, I win. Forever and ever and ever and ever and ever and ever. In just a few moments, we're going to take communion together. What an appropriate time. And I remember a, a preacher one time framing communion in, in these grand eternal perspectives of God. And, and this preacher said it like this. In the Garden of Eden, Satan held out his hand and he said, eat and you will live. They ate and they actually died. In the upper room, Jesus held out his hand and he said, eat and you will live. And when they did, when you did, as dead as you are, you were made alive with God and you find that indeed you really do live. Friends, that is worth celebrating. <laughs> that, that is worth getting excited about. There, there is no greater gift in all of the world than the gift of life. And, and maybe, maybe you're here this morning and you've never experienced that, that life-changing power of God. Will you humbly admit this morning that you are one of the walking dead and plead with God to give you life, to make you alive with Christ Jesus says this, whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. If you want Jesus, and if you go to Jesus, he will never look you in the eye and say, yeah, I think I'll pass. If you want Jesus, he'll take you. He'll give you his life. It's being extended to you today. Won't you take it? Let me pray for us, and then we're going to have communion together. Let's pray. Father God, what a joy. What a, what a miracle. Dead people coming to life. You would make us alive, and you, and you would 
bind us to Christ. You would put us under his righteousness and inside his blood and in his being. You would seat us at your right hand with Christ. What an honor. What a privilege. And we did nothing to deserve it. We did nothing to earn it. You do it because it makes you look great. It shows that you have the power, you have the majesty, you have the dominion. No spiritual force will ever win against you. And forever, you will show off your life-giving power to all of the universe as you redeem your church. Father, humbly, we say thank you. What else can we say? What else can we do? Thank you. Thank you for giving us life. Thank you for your grace and your mercy. We want to celebrate this now to your glory. In Jesus' name, amen.